And so to help us do that during this season of Epiphany, which is when God's people around the world celebrate God's world mission, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to be studying the Elijah and the Elisha narratives as found in First and Second Kings. And I want to do this because these stories are amazing. I want to do this because many of us aren't familiar with them. And I want to do this because these stories are all about God's word going out into a faithless generation. And so with that in mind, this morning, what I want us to think about is this prophetic accusation, a prophetic accusation. So with that in mind, let's look together. First Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 18. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of the food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Avel Mohalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching of this is word? (laughs) Father, we are thankful that you're a God who isn't silent nor hidden, but a God who really does delight to make himself known. 
You've done that in this, your word, by your Holy Spirit, and ultimately you've done it in the person and work of Jesus. And so it is our prayer that as we study your word, you would be with us and that you would show us lovely things about yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm not sure if any of you have ever heard of this cool, hip new play that's out called Hamilton, uh, but it's a musical. Uh, It's a musical about one of the founding fathers who ironically is named Alexander Hamilton. And then during this musical, like after the Revolutionary War, uh, Hamilton becomes this big shot lawyer and he actually tries uh, the first murder trial in the nation. And in one of the songs in this musical, it's called Nonstop, he sings about it and he says this, gentlemen of the jury, I'm curious, bear with me, are you aware that we're making history? This is the first murder trial in our brand new nation, the liberty behind deliberation. Right, And uh, as he's trying this trial, and then afterwards he begins to reflect upon his life, he begins to reflect upon the new nation that, he, that has uh, you know, been birthed, and he reflects upon it, and here's what he says. Corruption's such an old song that we can sing along in harmony, and nowhere is it stronger than in Albany. Now, I think this phrase, right, corruption, right, is such an old song we can sing along in harmony, is incredibly profound, right? Because corruption is a song that all of us know, and we all know it by heart. And that's exactly what Elijah is writing about here in 1 Kings chapter 19. He is saying that God's people are corrupt. And so like Hamilton, the lawyer who is trying a case, Elijah the prophet is trying a case. Elijah the prophet is making a case against Israel before God. And here are the charges. God's people are corrupt. And here's the verdict. That God cares about his covenant. And so I want to think about this case, and I want to think about the charges that God's people are corrupt. They're covenantally corrupt. But God continues to care about his covenant. So we'll do this trial in two ways. We'll look at the, you know, the corruption, and then we'll move on to the fact that God cares. Let's begin with corruption. As you read this passage, what you begin to see is that Elijah is being crushed under the weight of Israel's corruption. You've got to remember what has happened. We're in 1 Kings 19, and so what comes before 1 Kings 19 is 1 Kings 18. And there in that passage, you have the battle at Mount Carmel where God wins, right? The fire comes down from heaven, the sacrifice is accepted, and God proves himself to be the living and the true God, right? And Baal is overthrown, 450 of Baal's prophets are defeated, and the people of Israel then fall on their faces, And they say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And so as you read through 1 Kings chapter 18, the hope is that there will be a renewal throughout all of Israel. But when we come to 1 Kings 19, we see that Jezebel is furious. And she is furious because Ahab has told her all that God has done. And so she gets mad, and you see this in verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the, God, may the gods do to me, more, uh, me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And so essentially Jezebel has heard all that God has done through Elijah, and she sends this message to him, and she says... Tomorrow, you're dead. 
right? And so Elijah, uh, like, is kind of, he's a little anxious about having this hit taken out on him. And uh, this is a huge deal because if you remember, Carmel, that had seemed to be this great victory, that God truly is the living and true God, winds up going from victory to utter failure, Because the hope is that Israel would turn, that they would return to God. And now we see that the corruption continues. And so when we look at Elijah, he is now grieved by this. You see this in verse 3. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Now often when we read this passage, we focus in on this word, now he was afraid, Right? But the word isn't literally afraid. The word is literally that he saw, that Elijah saw and he arose. And so when it says that he's afraid, it's, it's an interpretation of the translation. And surely Elijah is afraid, right? I mean, he's had a hit taken out on his life. But more importantly to the text, Elijah sees something. And when he sees this, he rises up and he goes. And what is it that he sees? Elijah sees the corruption of Israel. And when he sees the corruption of Israel, he then goes into the wilderness and he wants to die. You see this in verse 4. And he asks that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Now the question is, why does he want to die? It's not because he's afraid of Jezebel, but it's because he has been grieved. He is grieved by the fact that no one is listening. He is grieved by the fact that God's people have turned away from him. He is grieved by the fact that he is ignored and that he is neglected. And so in many ways, when we look at Elijah here, Elijah is the embodiment, right? He's a visual representation of what it might look like to grieve the Holy Spirit. That when God's people neglect God's word and we turn away and we do not listen to him. And I would assume that many of you Uh, in your past, or maybe even in your present, have felt a lot like Elijah. Like, you're just sort of done with the whole thing. I mean, you're done loving your enemy because your enemy still hates you. Uh, You're done fighting against temptation because the temptations are not going away. Right? You're done reaching out to other people because no one is reaching out to you. You're, You're done serving the poor and the needy because the poor and the needy don't seem to want to change, and you think, I've had enough. And if I'm honest in my own life, I mean, I don't want to change. I mean, I love the patterns of my life. I've created the patterns of my life to make my life work for me. And I like doing things the way I like to do them. But here's the deal. When God's word goes forth, when God's word is going out, he is always, uh, in a sense, picking a fight with us. Because he wants to change us. Not because he despises us, but he wants to renew us. He wants to restore us. What he wants to do is he wants to draw us into himself. He wants to fill us up with himself so that we know his love and his goodness. And as we see his love and his goodness, we would then become a people who love him and then enter into the world in his love, reflecting it to all we come in contact with, that we would become a people who love him and love his ways. But sadly, the fact of the matter is often God's children... uh, don't want to change. 
And this has begun to grieve Elijah. And this is what he's experiencing. You see it in verses 5 through 7. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. All right, so Elijah's tired. Just like many of you are tired. Because you know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to love God. You're supposed to love your neighbor. But that's hard. And sometimes we just don't want to. And oftentimes we just refuse to. And I want you to notice that in the midst of our exhaustion, right, that God in his kindness draws near to Elijah. Verse 5, he draws near and he touches him in order to let us know that we aren't alone. He then feeds us for the journey. And then in verse 6, he gives us rest. And in many ways, that's exactly what happens every Sunday as we gather together. That, that God is, is drawing us out from our individual lives and he brings us together so that we would know that we're not alone. And then he meets with us in his word as he speaks to us and then he feeds us at his table and then he sends us out into the world for the, for the task for which he's called all of us. Right? I mean, that's the resting, right? That's the reminding. That's the reflecting as we come in and we rest with one another and we're reminded and then we're sent out uh, to reflect him. But as we look at this passage, it's not primarily about tired, worn out Christians. Uh, it is primarily a prophetic expression. Now, in order to fully appreciate this text, you have to slow down and you've got to notice where Elijah is going and what Elijah is doing. And so I'm going to ask you to bear with me for about 47 minutes. I'm um, just kidding, for a while. Uh, uh, we're going to have to slow down for here a second. Uh, because remember, when you think about Elijah, Elijah is a prophet, right? And what that means is that he is the mouthpiece of God, but he is not only the mouthpiece of God, he is the eyes and ears of God. And so as Elijah is going throughout the land of Israel, he's like collecting information, he's collecting data, he's seeing on behalf of God, he's speaking on behalf of God. And when we watch what Elijah does, essentially he is retracing uh, major moments in covenant history, and what I want you to notice is his journey. It begins in verse 1. We see Elijah rising up. We see him leaving Carmel and Jezreel, which is in uh, the northern part of Israel. And so he's all the way up at the top of Israel, right? And notice what he does. He leaves northern Israel and he goes south to Beersheba, which we're told in verse 3 uh, is in Judah, Right, which is in the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom is the kingdom that has remained faithful to David and has been, remained faithful to the worship of Yahweh. Right? They've remained faithful to the covenant. And so he has traveled 120 miles from the north to the south. He's covered the length of Israel in order to see the extent of their faithlessness. He's gone from top to bottom to see what has been happening. And then, uh, when he gets to Beersheba, notice what he does in verse 4. He goes a day's journey into the wilderness. Now, why would Elijah go into the wilderness? Well, who else went into the wilderness? Israel went into the wilderness. 
And Israel went into the wilderness because she did not believe God. She was unfaithful. Israel went into the wilderness when God had promised the promised land. They wanted to achieve it on their own rather than according to the promise. And so unfaithful Israel goes into the wilderness and they're there for 40 years. And every day in the wilderness, right, God would meet them. God would provide bread, and he would provide water for them when they didn't have it. And he provided for his unfaithful people. And so ironically, as we read here in Elijah, but probably less ironically and more intentionally, I want you to notice in verse 8 that Elijah is in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And while he's in the wilderness, God is providing bread for him, And God is providing water for him, just as he had done for unfaithful Israel. And then I want you to notice where he goes in verse 8. He goes from the wilderness to Mount Horeb. Now, Mount Horeb, it says, is the mountain of God. It's also known as Mount Sinai, which is another 200 miles through the wilderness. So do you see what's happening here? You might not, but here's what's happening. He is retracing the steps of Israel in reverse. When Israel went from Sinai through the promised land, now Elijah is going from the promised land back to Sinai. And just as Moses was up on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, Elijah is up on the mountain for 40 days and for 40 nights. And when Moses went up on the mountain, he goes into the cleft of this rock, right? And God reveals himself, not in these supernatural, not not in these crazy ways, but he reveals himself primarily through his word as he says, this is who I am. And now when Elijah goes up on the mountain, he goes into a cave, a cleft up on the same mountain, and God again appears, right? And he says, I'm not in these things, I'm not in these things, I'm not in these things, but then he reveals himself in the quiet word, and the whisper, again, reminding us that God is always in his word, that God is always faithful to his promises, that he will be faithful to them and he will be their God. But even more significant than all of this is you've got to remember why Moses was there in the first place. Why did Moses go up on the mountain of Sinai? He went up on the mountain of Sinai to make the covenant with God. Or to put it another way, he went up on the mountain to enter into relationship with God on behalf of God's people. And so a covenant was formed there, and that's where we get the Ten Commandments. But when Moses, after he receives the Ten Commandments and he comes down the mountain, do you remember what Israel is doing? They are worshiping the golden calf. Right, so he comes down the mountain, they're worshiping the golden calf. Moses gets mad, he throws the Ten Commandments down, symbolically uh, breaking the covenant, right? Because that's what Israel had done. He got the Ten Commandments. Israel, before they even received the Ten Commandments, they've already uh, broken Commandments 1 and 2. And so Moses then goes back up on the mountain, and God is talking with Moses, and they're speaking, and God says, look, I can't be with y'all anymore. I can't, I can't go before you anymore. Right? Because if I do, I'm going to have to consume you. Because you are a stiff-necked, rebellious people. And so Moses essentially says, you know what? You're right. We are stiff-necked. And we are rebellious. Would you remember your covenant? And would you remember your covenant and then pardon our iniquity? And would you forgive us for our sins? And would you take us as your inheritance? And when God hears the intercession of Moses, he says, 
okay, I'll renew the covenant with you. I will make you the great nation that I promised that you would be. I will give you the land that I promised to give you. I will be your God, just as I have always promised to do. But here's the deal. You've got to worship me. You've got to love me. And here's, here's what he says. He says, don't make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break down their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. And God said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. All right, there's a lot that we have just covered. Uh, But here's the point. God's people had been unfaithful to him. And in the wilderness, they had broken covenant with God. And so Moses, on their behalf, intercedes and he pleads for mercy. And God shows mercy because that's who God is. He is merciful and he is gracious. And he remakes the covenant with his people. But when he remakes that covenant, he says, remember me. Remember to love me. Remember to follow after me. Okay, so what does all this have to do with Elijah? Remember the golden calves. Baal was often depicted as a calf. And remember when Israel had become a nation under Jeroboam, They set up these golden calves at these alternate worship sites so that God's people wouldn't have to go to Jerusalem and worship at the temple and they could worship in another way. And then remember when Ahab became king and his wife Jezebel, right, the land of Israel then uh, fell into becoming a nation that worshiped Baal instead of worshiping Yahweh. And then remember God's people have been bowing down. And they haven't only been bowing down, they've let God's altar fall into disrepair. Right? They haven't worshipped him, they've broken the covenant with him. Right? And here's the point, Israel has broken the covenant with God once again. And so Elijah's trip right, is allowing him to see the fullness of Israel's corruption from top to bottom. And after having seen it, he then goes to the mountain of God. He goes back to the place of the covenant in order to tell God all that he has seen. And notice what he has seen in verses 10 through 14. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it. And what he's saying is they have done everything everything that God asked them not to do. They had torn down God's altars. They had killed his prophets. They had broken the covenant. They were worshiping other gods. And so Elijah basically is saying this. The evidence is in, and the evidence is clear. Your people stink. Like, your people are the worst, They don't love you, they don't obey you, they don't listen to you, they don't care. And sadly, it's not only true of Israel, if we are honest and courageous enough to admit it, it is also true of us as well. Because we recognize their corruption, not just in them, but we recognize it in ourselves. And as Hamilton says, we can sing along in harmony with it. 
Because even if our corruption takes on different forms, at root it's the same. We too don't care what God has to say. We too want to go our own way. We too want to live by our own rules. We ignore his word. We give in to temptation. Uh, We don't love people as we're intended to love people. And with Paul, we could say uh, we know what we ought to do, but we don't do it. And sadly, the church's own testimony within our culture has often not been a glorious testimony, but it's been a testimony of our anger and our judgment, of our arrogance and our ambivalence, of our materialism and of our consumerism, of our individualism and our favoritism. And it's in all of these ways and in all of these things that we too have broken God's covenant. And you can think about it on a real basic level. If we were just to get the Ten Commandments out, we were to line them up, right? We could all be very clear about how each of us have broken every one of them in our own uniquely corrupt ways. But if we would be courageous enough and vulnerable enough and honest enough to admit our own corruption maybe we would begin to learn something about God. Maybe we would begin to learn about his care. And so that's what I want us to think about for the next 37 minutes. I don't know how long, uh, until I'm done talking. Uh, That's what I want us to think about for the next few minutes, is that God actually cares, and he even cares for those of us who are corrupt. I want you to think again about this passage the prophet brings his accusation to God, and he's saying, your people are corrupt, they're, they're worthless, they're terrible. And, the, uh, and God essentially says this, I know, and I'm going to do something about it. I will deal with it. And notice what he does in verse 15 and following. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Yehu, son of Nimshi, and you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Moholah, and you shall anoint to be a prophet in your place. And the one who escapes the sword of Hazael shall put Yehu to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Yehu shall, put, shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now these verses will wind up getting worked out throughout the rest of First and Second Kings. But the main point is this, that God is sovereign over everything and that he rules over all the nations and that he sees everything and he will deal with all institutional, political, systematic, financial, and private evils. And that God has seen everything that Ahab has done. He's seen everything that Jezebel has done. And he will put an end to it all. And then by anointing Elisha, he is saying to Elijah that even when you die, I will preserve my word. And my word will continue. And my word is a word of love and promise to my people that I will be committed to them, that I will fulfill my promises, that I will fulfill my word, and my word will go forth. And so the proof of this is that there are 7,000 faithful Israelites who remain. And he's saying that God will always preserve a people for himself. But the question is this. Uh, The question is how? How is it that God can promise to bring curses upon those who break relationship with him 
and then remain faithful to those promises to never abandon his people? Well, the answer comes in the New Testament when Jesus follows this same pattern of Moses and Elijah, right? When Jesus comes into the world and we are told in John that he is the true and faithful word of God, and immediately after his baptism, do you know where Jesus goes? He goes into the wilderness. And he goes into the wilderness where he's tempted. And in the wilderness, he remains faithful. He does not fail. And as he comes out of the wilderness, Jesus proves his love for his people by not, uh, he proves his love for his people who even abandon him. He proves his love for his people who persecute him. He even weeps over Jerusalem because they will not listen to him. And then that same Jesus in Mark chapter 9 goes up on, a, on another mountain. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. And as he goes up on the mountain, do you know uh, who he's talking to? He's talking to Moses and Elijah. And what do you think they're talking about? I think they're finishing the conversation. Because on the mountain, the last time that they were together on the mountain, they were talking about the fact that God's people are stiff-necked and they are rebellious and they do not listen. And they are talking about how God will be a God who remains faithful to his covenant despite his people being unfaithful to it. And so the question is, is how can a holy and just God forgive a sinful, corrupt people? And the answer that Jesus gives is this. I will do it. I will be faithful, Israel. I will be faithful, Sean. I will be faithful, Jennifer. I will be faithful, Mary Austin and William and Annabelle. I will be faithful, Josh and Karen and Chris and Sarah. I will be faithful for my people. And I will bear their corruption so that I might bless them. The conversation ends. Moses and Elijah, they disappear. And Jesus walks down the mountain. And from Mark chapter 9 on, he turns his face and he walks straight to the cross. And he goes to the cross not to accuse God's people. He goes to the cross to bear their corruption. He goes to the cross to bear our sins. He goes to the cross to die for us. He goes to the cross as a faithful one, bearing the curses of the covenant in order to pour out the blessings of the covenant. So here's the point when you think about Christianity. What's it about? All we got is Jesus. That's it. He is everything. Christianity is not so much about being good people. We're corrupt people. It is about Jesus who has given himself for us. He bore the covenant curses for our corruption so that he might pour out the covenant blessings. And there's no other religion like this. Virtually every other religion is going to say, get your stuff together so that God will love and bless you. And even our modern religion of secularism uh, Though we believe in justice and we believe in curses for corruption, we don't believe in forgiveness. We don't believe that anyone could be or should be forgiven. And uh, if you have done something wrong, 
there's somebody in a basement somewhere looking for all the wrong things so that they can put it up on the internet uh, so that you, so that the world will see it, so that you'll never be forgiven, and so that you'll be exiled from this world. Right? The scandal of Christianity in our modern world is that God actually forgives corrupt people. But the good news of Christianity is that corrupt people like us actually can find welcome and forgiveness. That we can find forgiveness in Jesus. And that forgiveness is yours if you would just turn to him. That you would turn from your corruption and say, I need you to forgive me. And Jesus longs to pour out all of his blessings upon you. Let's pray.